0: I think it's uh, time to kind of go into our next panel, if everyone can uh, grab a seat. <clears throat> uh, welcome back. Uh, I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. I'm a constitutional lawyer. I got interested in the drug war, though, when I realized it was the most evil government policy ever, except for slavery. Um, I'm from Colorado. My first op-ed, I wrote a libertarian column from my junior high newspaper, showed how long I've been doing this. My first op-ed and in the 90s was on legalizing marijuana. And a lot of people got really, really mad at me and parents got really, really mad at me. Things have changed, but we're still kind of stuck in this drug war mentality. There's a, you know, Cato Institute here, of course, it's nice to have a harm reduction panel. We've been talking about legalizing all drugs since our doors opened in 1977. There's an old joke that you go to a Cato scholar and you say, have you heard about how they're selling heroin to five-year-olds out of vending machines in public parks? And he goes, yeah, that's horrible. Public parks? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we're going to do this uh, great panel on the cannabis and naloxone and other methods of harm reduction. Uh, we gonna start off with Corey Davis, who is the Deputy Director of the Nat- Network for Public Health Law's Southeastern Region and a staff attorney at the National Health Law Program. Corey has also worked for the North Carolina Institute of Medicine, the University of Pennsylvania, and the Drug Control and, the Drug Control and Access to Med- Medicines Consortium in both research and management capacities. He is the recipient of the International Aid Society's Young Investigator Award given for empirical research on the effect of law and law enforcement practice on access to an evidence-based public health intervention and has published in the and Academic Press. He received his BS from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, his Master's in Public Health from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and his JD, so I'm not the only lawyer in the room, his JD from Temple University, so please welcome Corey.
1: All right, Thank you, and uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a somewhat more discrete issue. I feel like we've most of the speakers uh, so far have been a little a little broader, um, and that's great. So I'm going to talk about uh, a particular. Uh, Problem, which is lack of access to this medication, naloxone, that you probably all have heard of uh, either by its generic name, naloxone, or often referred to by one of the brand names, which is Narcan. Um, but just in, for those of you who, who don't kind of live in this world, um, what is naloxone? Well, naloxone is what we call a pure opioid antagonist. An antagonist is just something that does the opposite. Of, of another thing, right? So when you have an opioid, um, the naloxone acts directly uh, to contravene the, the actions of, of that opioid. And that's all that it does. It doesn't do anything else. That's what I mean by a pure opioid antagonist. It does absolutely nothing else except counteracts the effects of, of an opioid. Um, it does that quickly, it does it safely, it does it effectively. As uh, Maya said, this medication was, uh, was developed back in the 60s. It was approved by the Food and Drug, Drug Administration in 1971. Um, it's available in a number of generic formulations. Um, it is not a controlled substance, so it does require a prescription, um, but it is not scheduled uh, un- uh, under federal law because it has, like I said, it has no abuse potential. You can't get high off of it. It does absolutely nothing other than uh, counteract the effects of opioids. Um, it's been used in, in hospitals, in clinics, uh, some pre-hospital sort of ambulance type use for decades. Um, but beginning in the 1990s, and again, Maya talked about this, particularly due to the efforts of, of this pioneer called uh, Dan Big, beginning in the 1990s, you know, we started to see an increase in, in people who were dying of, of opioid-related overdose. And of course, as, as with so many things, you know, the people who are on the ground you know, realize what's going on long before um, you know, the federal agencies or state agencies or academics. Um, so he decided to do something about it and started distributing naloxone directly to people who are using drugs. Uh, in Chicago and then it kind of uh, gained, uh, gained steam from there. Um, and, and that's important, right? Because, so uh, opioid overdose is really just what we call opioid-induced respiratory depression. The opioids do a number of things, but some of them good, analgesia is good, euphoria can be good, um, but respiratory depression is, is bad. It's a bad state to be in, we call it hypoxia, and the longer you're in that state, the worse your outcomes are likely to be, right? So it's important to reverse an opioid overdose as quickly as you can. You know, death is a very important outcome measure, we don't want people to die, but even people who are revived after having uh, had an overdose, if your brain has been starved of of oxygen for long enough, you could have... um, you know, non-fatal uh, complications. And sometimes they're very difficult to measure, but they're there. So it's really important, not only that we reverse the overdose, but that we reverse the overdose as quickly as we possibly can. And that means getting naloxone into the hands of the people who are there, who are on the scene of the overdose, who are the real first responders, which in, in most cases is going to be other people who use drugs, uh, the friends and family members uh, of people who use drugs. So, so that's the... You know, that's the key place um, that, that we need to be uh, getting naloxone into the world. So here's just a, a graphic that just shows what I described. So you can see here the, the opioid here is sitting on the receptor. This is probably a mu receptor um, in the brain. And naloxone comes in and it actually knocks that opioid right off that receptor and uh, reverses the overdose. And it's, you know, this is what it does. Uh, it does nothing else and it does this very well. So most overdoses are witnessed. It's, it's hard to tell exactly um, you know, how many uh, people overdose with somebody else present, but it's probably more than 50%. Um, there are some studies that say some are 70 80%. This uh, MMWR from earlier this year gave a number that 44% of fatal opioid overdoses uh, were witnessed. Unfortunately, naloxone was administered only in about 4%. Of those cases. And that's, you know, that is, it's horrific, right? Because we know we have this medication that is cheap and safe and effective and reverses opioid overdose. Uh, If those bystanders, those witnesses, had this medication, they could have reversed these overdoses. But they didn't have it, so they couldn't. So um, again, you know, it's important to get naloxone to preferentially to people who use drugs. And we have now. Just a boatload of studies that show that, you know, you can do this, uh, people who use drugs are, are, are responsible, they, they want to carry naloxone, they will carry naloxone, they can use naloxone, they want to use naloxone, and when they do that, uh, you save money and you save lives. So let's talk about the law. So, like I said, it's a prescription medication. It's not a controlled substance, so that means that anybody who is authorized by state law to prescribe medications can prescribe naloxone. Uh, To their own patient, there is no liability risk associated with that. It is the medication that is indicated for opioid overdose. If you have a patient who is at risk for opioid overdose, this is absolutely normal, ethical, completely rational thing to do. Nobody's ever been sued for doing this, and there's no reason to think. that they would, but the problem is that that is a very, um, you know, you're only reaching one person at a time through that method, and you're only reaching people who have access to the healthcare system. You know, you in general, you you know, you need to go to see a doctor or, or other prescriber to get a prescription. But of course, the people who are at highest risk of opioid overdose often are disconnected from the traditional healthcare system. Um, you know, you. May not be insured. You may be underinsured. It's expensive to see the provider. It's expensive to fill uh, the prescription. You know, if you're unhoused or you're poorly housed or you're, you know, you're homeless or you know, you're just, uh, you know, don't have access to reliable transportation. Like a lot of people, you know, it's hard to like, physically get to the appointment. It's hard to physically get to the pharmacy. And of course, there's a lot of stigma associated um, with people who use drugs, particularly people who. Inject drugs. They may not uh, be comfortable sharing that fact uh, with their provider if they have one, because you know they don't want to be stigmatized. They might be afraid that if they do have an opioid prescription, um, you know, you generally are not going to want to tell your doctor, "Hey, doc, I think I've developed a problem with that with that medication," because you would be concerned, probably rightly so, that that you know your source might be um, cut off. And there is a big problem on, on the provider side as well, where kind of chipping away at this, but it's, it's still the case that a lot of providers have stigma against people with opioid use disorder, have stigma um, against, uh, you know, against Naloxone, against this whole idea of harm reduction, or simply don't know about it. And they've, you know, they've never been educated. Nobody has ever said to them, you know this medication exists, and there's absolutely no problem with you prescribing it. So those are legal and regulatory barriers uh, to people accessing Um, The medication. So this is actually, you know, one of the places where we have seen state action to try to remove some of these barriers. So we have seen states change their naloxone access laws to basically chip away at the generally existing prescription requirements. Doing things like waiving the requirement that the provider and the patient have a face-to-face interaction, which is a general requirement before you issue a prescription. Um, permitting people other than pharmacists and and physicians to dispense the medication, providing liability protections, um, and and so on. And we can see this um, really rapid progression of these laws state by state. Um, Starting in in 2010, there were six or seven states, um, to where by mid-2017, every state had passed some sort of law increasing access to naloxone, typically by generally, you know, the main intervention here is removing that requirement that there be this face to face interaction between the prescriber and the patient. And states have done that in, in, to various, way, in various ways and with various levels of, of effectiveness. And that's worked. Like these laws work. Um, there have been a, a, a number of papers that came out in the last year. Uh, states that passed these laws first saw uh, more Medicaid reimbursed uh, naloxone, a uh, greater amount of naloxone going out from pharmacies, um, increased likelihood of having an overdose and naloxone distribution program in the state. And most importantly, these are associated with a reduction in opioid overdose-related deaths. You know, that's, that's ultimately where we want to go, and these things do seem to be getting us there. But it's not enough. You know, as we know, you know, so these are, these are relative, right? So deaths are growing at a lower rate in states with these laws compared to states without them. But because of everything um, that we've heard about earlier today, you know, overall deaths are still going up. We are in an epidemic of, of opioid-related harm. And, you know, we know they're not enough because we know, you know, at a minimum, 44 45% of fatal opioid overdoses are witnessed nearly every one of those overdoses could have been prevented if the person there had naloxone, right? So it's, it's this huge, you know, missed opportunity, this, 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 you know, massive, juicy, low-hanging fruit just, 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 just sitting there um, waiting to be picked. And, you know, so these state laws are helping, um, but they're not nearly enough. You know, most of them, you know, they still, at some level, require a prescriber. You know, you still need somebody signing a standing order or, or starting the clinic or whatever. Um, a lot of them still require a pharmacist somewhere in the chain. They still, still require. You know, they're they're just kind of making little incremental changes to the existing regime, whereby you know prescriptions are handled in the medical system, and you need to interact with various you know highly trained, expensive people. To access um, medications, and, and that creates a problem for community-based organizations. You know, uh, organizations that are trying to distribute naloxone through their existing syringe exchange program, or just a community-based organization that has formed uh, for the purpose of distributing naloxone. As Maya said, there are a lot of these organizations operating, but. I talk to these people all the time and they are constantly, constantly running into trouble, trying to navigate state laws just to get naloxone that they can give away for free. Um, this leads to some organizations operating below capacity, some that would want to start, you know, a mother who has lost a kid and, and is like, what can, I, what can I do? I want to do this. They, just, they don't know. They, they don't have the resources. They can't navigate that system. So they just give up, and it just never happens. Because the laws are, you know, like I said, they can't, you know, they're, they're just making these incremental changes. A lot of these programs... Uh, are kind of operating in some sort of legal gray area, which, you know, nobody is trying to go after them so far, but they, if they decided to, um, they could. Um, and, you know, so, and again, that's a big problem because that is the preferred way of getting naloxone to people. We want to reach the people at highest risk. We want to reach those people who are at the syringe exchange program. We want to reach the people in the homeless shelters and the um, you know, the detox facilities, people who are coming off of um, medication-assisted treatment, you know, those people are the people at highest risk. So FDA has finally, after people you know, asking them for years and years, has taken some steps um, in the right direction. They have expedited approval and have now approved an easy-to-use nasal applicator device. This is the capital N, Narcan. There's also an auto-injector uh, called Evzio. Um, I don't know about Narcan. Uh, I know that Evzio was, was developed with millions of dollars in, in, in NIDA money, um, You know, your money, our money. Um, and they have, uh, they have created the, this label. So, so drugs that are available over-the-counter need to have a particular label um, giving particular information about the drug. Typically, this is something that the manufacturer has to develop. In the case of Naloxone, um, FDA has gone out and they have developed this label on their own and they basically put it out there and said, hey, um, you know, manufacturers, please uh, go ahead and develop an over-the-counter medication, or really in this case, move an existing prescription-only product over the counter. Uh, but the manufacturers aren't going to do that. They don't want to do that because they think that they can make more money in the traditional uh, prescription-only uh, regime. Um, that's not necessarily true. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But you know, they are not going to do this um, on, their, on their own accord. They have told me this. Um, I have talked to executives from both of these companies, and they have said, we are not going to do this. We have no interest in this. Um, and that's unfortunate, because naloxone is extremely, uh, you know, it is very appropriate for over-the-counter use. Um, you know, regular people can recognize when somebody needs the medication. We have this drug that is highly efficacious. It has no contraindications. Uh, like Maya said, the only thing that can possibly go wrong is if someone is, uh, is opioid dependent, it can put them into precipitated withdrawal. Almost, you know, that is, it's, un- it's uncomfortable, um, but it is highly preferable to the alternative, you know, which is death. Um, the medication itself is very stable. You can keep it for a long time. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. You know, it can't be abused. It can't be misused. You know, it's just um, has all the characteristics of an over-the-counter medication, particularly in these two formulations that were explicitly uh, approved for layperson, for use by untrained lay people. Um, other countries have done this. Australia moved nooxone over-the-counter in 2016. Canada has sort of a federalist system where they said, you know, the federal government took it off their prescription list, so the provinces could um, could remove the prescription requirement, and some have. The U.K. has sort of a behind-the-counter regime um, where you don't need a prescription. You can just walk into a pharmacy, and they put nooxone on, on that schedule. So, you know, and... And it's working fine, you know, <laughs> because it's a very safe drug that does nothing but save lives. Um, you know, it's working well in the countries that have done it. So this is what we should be doing in the United States. Um, there is, you know, one thing that people say is, well, it's, it'll be more expensive. You know, um, it'll, it'll be more expensive. Now people are covered by insurance and they are, you know, they, they won't be able to get it. Um, well, you know, there was this modeling study that just came out by a bunch of economists. You know, who are just you know egg-headed economists, and they ran the numbers and they said, no. You know, we we look at what happens to other medications that go from prescription only to over the counter. We find that uh, access actually increases. Pharmacy access actually increases, and we run the numbers on naloxone, and we think at a minimum. Uh, it, Fifteen percent more uh, naloxone would be going out of retail pharmacies if it was made over the counter, Um, and these, you know, again, these insurance issues are not unique to naloxone, right? These are problems that exist all throughout um, the American healthcare system. And again, the the main group that we're targeting with this are not people who are accessing naloxone um, from the pharmacy or from a traditional medical provider. You know, they're going to be fine. Um, These are barriers that are. Uh, mostly affecting these community-based organizations, um, these sort of grassroots organizations. So how do we do that? Well, under federal law, there are kind of three mechanisms um, whereby a drug that is approved as a prescription-only drug can be moved over the counter. One is we call a citizen petition. Um, The second is the manufacturer can ask for that change. And the third is that the commissioner of the FDA can do that on their own authority. Um, It... Almost always happens via the second pathway. Um, the manufacturer is either going to, you know, they're losing their marketing exclusivity. The drug is going off patent, um, and they so they, you know, try to move this, move the drug from prescription only to over the counter. This happened with um, Nexium, for example. It happened with a bunch of um, antihistamine products. Um, once the drug is going to lose its, you know, its ability to, to get those, um, uh, those rents from, from the prescription status, they move it over the counter. Um, like I said, that's not going to happen in this case. But that leaves the third one. So the FDA commissioner can, just on his or her own authority, it's, it's a he, um, can move the medication over the counter just on their own authority. This is clear in the law, you know, this is, it's not ambiguous, it's, it's not questionable. The commissioner can clearly do this. They have done it before. Um, they told the, the Washington Post back in 2003, like, we can do this. Um, the regulations are, are clear that the commissioner can do this. Um, it just doesn't seem to want to. Um, all of the press releases from FDA you know, tout their development of this drug label, and they talk about how they're they're trying to work with industry and so on. Um, but you know, it, it's not enough. You know, the commissioner needs to deregulate and can deregulate uh, without anybody asking. You know, can just look at you know look at the situation, and say this is what needs to happen, um, and can do that. So there are two there are two possible ways to do that. You can move all naloxone products over the counter. That might actually be best for the community distribution because the generic injectable is cheaper. A lot of these community-based organizations are giving out um, the generic injectable. Um, There are injectable over-the-counter medications. About 15% of all insulin in this country um, is is over-the-counter. Really don't think that they're likely to do that. But, like we said, there are these two products, uh, Ebzio and Narcan, that were designed to be used by lay people. I mean, they were basically designed as over-the-counter medications. Um, They're really easy to use. They're they're difficult to mess up. Um, Here's the, you know, these two quotes are from FDA press releases that they issued when they uh, approved these medications. You know, they say it can be used by people without medical training. It can be used by family members or caregivers. You know, they're talking about over-the-counter medications here that just happen to be in this Um, this anachronistic prescription only um, regime and there is no problem with um, a medication being both prescription only in one form and over-the-counter in another form the most common example of this is ibuprofen um, which above 800 milligrams requires a prescription less than that you can just buy it you know buy a bottle of a thousand at at your Walgreens so here's where we are, you know, we are in this continuing public health crisis of opioid related harm, both fatal and non-fatal overdoses. Everybody recognizes this. We have this discrete legal barrier, this unnecessary you know, anachronistic legal barrier to people accessing the medication that is safe and effective and designed to reverse uh, opioid overdose. Um, States are doing their job to the extent that they can. They're acting as laboratories of democracy. They are trying to make this medication easier to access, but they cannot move it over-the-counter on their own. Only the FDA um, can do that, and the FDA should, because inaction um, is costing lives. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Corey. Uh, NEXT WE'LL BE HEARING FROM Dr. Aidy Wilson-Poe, who studies the analgesic properties of opioids and cannabinoids and the mechanisms by which cannabinoids reduce the negative effects of opioid consumption. Her multifaceted work ranges from synaptic physiology to clinical pharmacology. Dr. Wilson-Poe's long-term goal is to elucidate the harm reduction potential of cannabis in the opioid overdose epidemic. She received her PhD in neuroscience from Washington State University, was a postdoc research associate at the University of Sydney in Australia, and a postdoc fellow in neurophysiology and pain and addiction Columbia.
2: Thank you so much for your time and attention. Um, I wanted to start off today with some heritage propaganda um, and, and it's not to say that the gateway hypothesis has no evidence. We certainly have a lot of links between cannabis and the use of opioids. And and those links, which were discovered in the 70s and 80s, Are correlational they're not causational so we know that the uh, use of cannabis is correlated with the use of harder drugs including opioids Um, but that this correlation also exists for other substances such as nicotine and alcohol so those people who are using cannabis or alcohol or nicotine are also more likely to use those other drugs and what we have come to understand through decades of addiction research is that what these people really have in common is that risk risk-taking behavior, and that risk is a a large component of addiction and and drug abuse. Um, And we also know through, again, decades of research that certain people are more vulnerable to these effects. Uh, so coming out of this history of this, uh, this association between you know cannabis and opioids, um, we're really looking at the inverse of what we had been discovering for, for a number of decades, which is not that cannabis is the gateway to opioid abuse, but rather it could be a tool to get us out of opioid use and abuse. So in 2016, the CDC came forth with a a new set of prescription guidelines for physicians to uh, attempt to tackle the opioid epidemic. And among their most important conclusions was that we should be using non-opioid drugs for most cases of chronic pain. Now, this recommendation was very shortly followed up by a study that was released from the National Academies of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine, which determined conclusively after looking at more than 10,000 studies conducted in humans published since 1999, that cannabis is indeed safe and effective for the relief of chronic pain in adults. So the CDC is telling us, hey, let's use non-opioids, and the National Academies is saying, here's your non-opioid. So if we have a look at what happens in states after they pass a medical cannabis law, we see a number of really interesting findings at the epidemiological level. Uh, We see, first of all, the amount both in the dollar amount and in the number of prescriptions, Medicaid prescriptions, is decreased. And a lot of these prescriptions are analgesics, and a lot of them are also, um, also things that people substitute cannabis for, such as benzodiazepines. So cannabis is very commonly used for both analgesia and to treat anxiety. And we see that for for all the classes of drugs that uh, people tend to to use to treat and and cannabis is a substitute, those drugs go down after people get access to cannabis. We also see that there's an increase in employee productivity. That is, people call in to, to work sick less often. We see a a decrease, a substantial decrease in the number of non-fatal overdoses as measured by the emergency department visits. But really the statistic that's been keeping me up awake since it came out in 2014 was that after a state induces medical cannabis, there is, on average, a 25% drop in fatal opioid overdoses. And this has been confirmed in in a variety of ways using a, a, a few different analysis types but it's quite a robust effect and that effect gets larger the longer a state has had a medical cannabis law. So for instance, in California, they've had compassionate use since 1996 and they also have the lowest opioid overdose mortality in the country. So the question here is, what is it about cannabis that is keeping people out of the ER and out of the grave? So if we have a look at what happens during the course of opioid consumption of course we have you know these are analgesic drugs that are legitimately prescribed for very good reasons such as an, a, a serious injury or surgery and that in the, in the course of the treatment of that injury or surgery, there is the risk for using those medications to the point where the body develops a physical dependence on the drug. When physical dependence happens, the body and the brain can't function normally without the presence of that drug. So where is it that cannabis is intervening in this process? So we have the potential to just add cannabis on as an adjunct analgesic therapy during the course of the treatment of the injury or illness. If we do that, can we prevent the development of physical dependence? And we have some evidence that says yes. Yes, in fact, we can. And I'll get into that. But there are a number of other places. So after we have the development of physical dependence, we also have evidence that shows that cannabis can help people wean or taper off of their current opioid regimen. There's also emerging evidence that shows that cannabis is pretty effective at alleviating the symptoms of acute opioid withdrawal. And most importantly, we have some really exciting evidence that's emerging demonstrating that cannabis could be an effective tool in the protracted recovery phase. So here you have someone who essentially has a lifelong recovery process from formerly being physically dependent upon opioids. And cannabis may play an important role in maintaining a healthy lifestyle that is free from relapse. One very obvious way that cannabis could be preventing all of this entirely is pure substitution. If we never give patients the opportunity to even consume opioids because they have a different non-lethal analgesic alternative, then we prevent this entire cycle. So opioids, my work has largely focused on um, a brain region in the midbrain, which is really what I call the the, the brain's pain headquarters, the periaqueductal gray. So opioids produce pain relief primarily by acting at receptors in this brain region, and that activation turns off signals that are coming in from the spinal cord. So this is really where the brain is centrally turning off the pain signals that are coming in from the body. What's very interesting is that cannabis acts the exact same way. So on the same neurons, in the same region, brain region, using the same neurotransmitters. These are both G-protein coupled receptors that couple to the same intracellular messages. So this is a very fundamentally similar process of analgesia. These drugs get into the brain and they turn off pain in a very similar manner. The biggest differences are, obviously, the abuse liability of opioids is high and cannabis is low, and the overdose potential for opioids is high and cannabis is impossible. So if we're talking about cannabis's ability um, to to enhance opioid analgesia as an adjunct therapy, let's let's have a look at, at what happens when we use these drugs in combination. First and foremost, we get acute analgesic synergy. And this isn't a buzzword from the VCs in (laughs) Silicon Valley. This is the pharmacological definition of synergy, which is that when you have two drugs used in combination, you get a greater than additive effect. So 2 plus 2 equals 7 not four. And this analgesic synergy has been demonstrated across pretty much every opioid we've tried, every cannabinoid molecule we've tried in many species, including humans. This is a very profound and robust effect. You get better pain relief when the drugs are used in combination than you do when they're used in isolation. You also have a bidirectional sensitization So what I mean by that is that using cannabis first actually can sensitize the organism to the subsequent effects of an opioid. And you'll see this here. This is, you know, the squiggly lines are just a demonstration that morphine's potency is enhanced when you have uh, an animal that was previously exposed to THC. This is really crucial because what it demonstrates is that if you have enhanced potency, you don't need as much. So if you don't require as much of an opioid as you did without cannabis, then right here we have the mechanism to prevent physical dependence. If you reduce the dose, you reduce the risk for physical dependence, and therefore you reduce the risk of all that other stuff that happens after physical dependence, including abuse liability and overdose liability. Also, in chronic pain patients, cannabis is opioid sparing. That means when a patient gets access to cannabis, on average, they consume half as many opioids as they did prior to their to the, um, to the start of their cannabis therapy. And this, again, is a very robust effect that has been demonstrated across the planet by many different researchers. And we know that this, this is possible even without any instruction whatsoever from the physician. So in the United States, doctors cannot prescribe cannabis. They can certify that a patient has a qualifying condition, which would enable them to get access to cannabis. But that's a very different um, mechanism than being actively engaged in this therapy, which for the most part, physicians in the United States of America are prevented from being engaged in cannabis therapy with their patients. So even without their doctor's guidance, people can do this. They consume fewer opioids if they have cannabis in hand. Also, again, getting at the entire prevention of the public health crisis entirely, we see that patients um, can can start with this weaning process and then eventually move toward um, a a substitution process um, if they just don't substitute from the get go. So this is some data um, from a patient survey. So these are chronic pain patients who largely have been using opioids. And when they're given access to cannabis, they they report a number of really interesting things. One, uh, the vast majority of them are able to reduce the opioid doses that they're consuming. They have fewer side effects with cannabis than they do with opioids. You know, Opioids have a number of really nasty side effects, not just the overdose potential, not just the abuse liability. But the constipation, particularly in geriatric patients, is a major, major concern. And these patients report that they prefer the side effects of, of cannabis. No surprise, given that it's euphoric. Um, They also report that they, in general, just prefer the cannabis over their opioids, and that if it was an option to them, they would entirely substitute their opioids for cannabis. So if we go back to, you know, sort of this, the community-defined needs, and we're asking the patients and the people, what is it that you need? And they're saying, This is what I need. I need a substitute. I need something I'm not afraid of. I need something that's not going to produce constipation. They're telling us this is what they need. So right now the challenge is really to um, put the Put the horse in front of the cart because due to legalization, we're in a very interesting situation where we've got widespread medical use of what is clearly a therapeutic drug um, without the traditional sort of you know phases of clinical trials to demonstrate this is how often you use it. This is your dose. This is, you know, these are, these are the conditions under which you, you consume the drug. So we're, we're right now in the process of trying to really nail down some, some very, unfortunately, fundamental questions. Um, and so a colleague and I have a study going at Thomas Jefferson University up in Philadelphia where we're um, just looking at our, our, our medical cannabis patients, these are chronic pain patients, and monitoring their well-being on a a number of scales. Um, And we're also including some really important patient education um, protocols. So there, you know, I can go into detail about what cannabis therapy looks like for pain. You know, we could have a whole entire, you know, hour-long conversation about that alone. But the most important factor, you know, potentially in this cannabis for pain protocol is something that we really messed up with on the opioids, which is this stuff causes tolerance, physical dependence, and it can produce some, you know, um, cannabis use disorder. So in order to avoid all of those negative things, because we know that this is not an entirely risk-free therapy, you need to take regular breaks from your medication. We have brain imaging studies that demonstrate that even 48 hours of abstinence is enough for the brain's CB1 receptors, the main target for delta-9-THC. Just 48 hours of abstinence is enough f- for those brain receptors to bloom again and look no different than a person who has never consumed cannabis. So this is our primary you know, strategy that, where we can get something right with cannabis that we got very, very wrong with opioids, which is to prevent tolerance, physical dependence um, through regular tolerance breaks. Now... I've shown you some data about chronic pain patients. So when they get access to cannabis, they use fewer opioids, and and that's wonderful. Um, But what about those illicit users? So if we have synergistic analgesia, if we have potentiated analgesia, do we also have potentiated abuse? We're all sitting in this room because the opioid abuse problem is immense. We can't afford to make that any worse. Fortunately, however, the data shows us the opposite of that. So I'm showing you some preliminary data from um, some researchers in Vancouver, B.C., which demonstrates that in illicit heroin users, for those people who also use cannabis, they are four times less likely to end up in the ER with a non-fatal overdose than the illicit heroin users who don't use cannabis. So again, somehow cannabis is intervening to provide a protective effect, both in how much opioids people are consuming, as well as the detrimental side effects of consuming those opioids. So we've talked about adjunct therapy and the potential to avoid this whole mess entirely if we had a a safe analgesic substitute. So um, what about withdrawal? And what about the protracted recovery phase? And this is where we have relatively sparse data, mostly because, as you're aware, cannabis is still a federally controlled substance which has no medical value. Because it has no medical value, people like me have a very difficult time getting research funding to study these things. So so what evidence we have has to, again, come from the community. Just like 15 years ago, when people started coming to their family physician and saying, hey, doc, if I smoke a J before bed, I don't need as many hydrocodone. So we had those anecdotal reports trickling in about chronic pain, which then came to be a really fundamental shift in the way that we're treating pain in this country. And now we're starting to see the same thing with opioid users and how they're using cannabis to wean themselves off of both prescription and illicit opioids, as well as methadone and suboxone and other medication-assisted therapies. So, there is evidence, um, you know, in, in the preclinical literature and animal models, we see this all the time. We can, we can get readily alleviate the symptoms of opioid withdrawal by administering cannabis and cannabinoids. There's also evidence showing that for people who are attempting to self detox, one of the most important tools they use in that detox detox process is whole plant cannabis. There's also some evidence that shows that um, dronabinol, which is a synthetic delta-9-THC, is helpful um, for people who are on naltrexone. But again, this is a very young field, and there are also some conflicting reports. Um, and, And there's a couple of hypotheses that we have in terms of why those conflicting results are out there. One of them is what is the dose of THC that people are being exposed to or, or are consuming? We know that th- there are lots of detrimental effects of high doses of THC, including the risk for cannabis use disorder, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, that's cyclic vomiting, as well as cannabis-induced psychosis, which there is some kind of link there. But a lot of those links are, you know, dependent on the, T- the dose of THC being relatively high. So what is the dose of THC or whole plant cannabis that is the most efficacious for, for helping someone get through these withdrawal symptoms? We don't know. Um, it's also dependent on the chemical phenotype or the chemical makeup of the plant. So, you know, again, we're, we've been talking about the detrimental effects of THC, but THC is far from the only ingredient in cannabis, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. So what is it that cannabis is doing during withdrawal? We, we have a number of FDA-approved medications that are actually quite effective at alleviating withdrawal symptoms, and, and that, you know, it, it, it is plausible that people could substitute cannabis for these other things, although I think it is more probable that we'll end up using cannabis as an adjunct therapy to these other things that work really well, like methadone and suboxone. But what are these patients going through? They're agitated. They're in pain. They have trouble sleeping. They're nauseated. And cannabis and its constituents have reliably been shown to treat all of these symptoms. So so that's the withdrawal end of things. And and we've got some very strong rationale to continue down this path and determine what kinds of cannabis or which constituents are going to be the most effective for these symptoms and and, and as an adjunct or or standalone therapy. Where things get a little bit more murky is in relapse prevention. So again, we have lots of these drugs that we use to maintain people, um, to prevent them from relapsing, often for the rest of their life. Um, And unfortunately, that's not really what they were designed for. They were were really designed for acute withdrawal treatment. But the evidence doesn't lie. The most effective tool we have at preventing relapse is the combination of medication-assisted therapy with social support. There is absolutely no rationale to deviate from that. However, social support and medication-assisted therapy do not prevent the one thing, that usually triggers people from using drugs, which is drug craving. So there's some very exciting evidence coming out that's demonstrating that cannabis and its constituents, uh, primarily cannabidiol most likely, are very powerful at preventing drug craving. So what you're looking at here is really Um, Some evidence that it's just comparing a placebo um, group to some patients who are getting CBD, which is cannabidiol is the second most prominent cannabinoid molecule found in cannabis. And that even a single dose of CBD prevents the anxiety that drug cues produce, and it prevents the craving that drug cues produce. And that even a single administration of this is good to prevent this craving for up to a week. So this was done in, um, in an ER setting at Mount Sinai. Yasmin Hurd is, is the investigator there. Um, but in addition to cannabidiol's effect, we also see that cannabis users are more likely to adhere to their medication-assisted therapies. Again, there's strong rationale that you know these folks have one additional tool to just get them through the day so that they can continue on with their medication-assisted therapy and and get through a, a life without relapse. Again, because this field is so young and we don't have federal funding to support the kind of research to get more evidence, there is some conflicting evidence. However, the Canadians have really stepped up and they're doing some clinical trials. So Philippe Lucas at Tilray, who's a licensed producer of cannabis in Canada, they're doing adjunct uh, cannabis with methadone uh, patients right now. But we have seen that in states with medical cannabis laws, you know, there's a list of qualifying conditions. In order to get access to the medical cannabis program, you either have to have PTSD or chronic pain or a number of other things in order to qualify for that state's program. And a number of states have stepped up and said, OK, we're just going to put opioid use disorder on our list of qualifying conditions. So New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland is strongly considering it right now. One thing that Illinois has done right is that rather than considering opioid use disorder as, as a qualifying condition, they've made it such that if a patient is holding a prescription for an opioid, they automatically qualify for the medical cannabis program. And that is precisely the kind of immediate action That you have to take when you have a a burning building in front of you, yes, you need clinical trials in the form of, you know, building materials that aren't flammable and better building code and all that. But when you have a raging fire in front of you, you've got to point a big, fat fire hose at it. And that's what this kind of policy does. So pain... And opioid use disorder do not exist in a vacuum. If we have a look at, w- w- if you ask these people what's going on in their lives, pain is a major trigger for substance misuse, including alcohol and, and all kinds of other things. You know, we have this hypervigilance, this attention that we're giving to the pain, the catastrophizing, making the pain worse. And those are all triggers for self-medication in one form or another, relapse of one form or another. If we have a look at people who are on opioid maintenance therapies, 80% of them have had pain recently, and more than a third of them are in chronic pain. So if our gold standard for the treatment of chronic pain is an opioid, and that's precisely what these people are trying to avoid, what do we do for individuals who are on opioid maintenance therapy who are in chronic pain? We have to give them something because if we don't give them something, they're going to catastrophize and they're going to self-medicate and they're going to relapse. We also know that the majority of these folks have comorbid either anxiety or depression or some form of mood disorder. And again, this anxiety is a trigger for craving this negative mood state. You know, so George Koob is a a neuroscientist who's published on this dark side of addiction. And we we know that, you know, we all have normal fluctuations in our mood, but that with chronic drug exposure, those fluctuations continue to drift downward and downward. And that with time, there's simply no amount of drugs that you could take to boost you back up to feeling normal. So what do we do for these folks? We have to look at pain. And mood disorders and opioid maintenance in combination. We have to look at a holistic treatment plan rather than an individual symptom treatment plan. So I'm going to show you a really complicated slide to illustrate a very simple idea, which was just recently published by my group in the journal Neuron, which is that There is a biological underpinning for the link between the affective or the emotional component of pain and the physical component of pain. We know the receptors that are involved. We know the brain areas that are involved. We know the endogenous neurotransmitters that are involved. There is an inherent brain-based link between negative mood and pain. It is physically incapable of being separated. So again, this is rationale for a holistic treatment plan that looks at what kind of therapies can we use that not only alleviate the somatic or bodily sensation of pain, but the emotional or affective component at the same time. So our patients need medication-assisted therapy and social support. Again, we have a lot of evidence that says that the combination of those two things is our most powerful uh, relapse prevention tool. Our patients need pain relief. They need mood support, they need to treat their withdrawal symptoms, and they need some way to avoid craving and relapse. And we have a pretty good amount of evidence to suggest that cannabis does pretty much all of these things. Cannabis is not entirely risk-free. You know, As we talked about, the, the risks are the greatest with greater potency and, and, and higher amounts of THC. And there is an argument you know, out there in the recovery community that says, well, aren't you just trading dependencies? Yes. Yes, you are. You are trading dependencies. You are being physically dependent upon naloxone or methadone, which can be lethal for being dependent upon something which is non-lethal and that is the heart of harm reduction. So there is some risk for cannabis use disorder and again, all of those other things which are again, we have the greatest risk with the greatest potency. But I I wanted to drive the point home that although we call cannabis an exit drug for the opioid crisis or cannabis is safe and effective for pain relief, cannabis is not one thing, it's one delivery system for dozens or scores of biologically active molecules. You know, we've got 114 plus cannabinoids, we have 60 plus terpenes or terpenoids, we have all kinds of alkaloids and esters and, and other things that are interacting with the human body. And this is really the Mariana Trench of pharmacology, and we are at the very, very beginning of understanding which molecules for which patients for which conditions. So with that, I would like to really thank NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, despite the fact that you know there are some regulatory hurdles to getting access to biomedical funding for this kind of stuff. Um, I have fortunately been funded you know my entire career. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much, A.D. <clears throat> now we have time for, well, what time is it here? Few questions, I was gonna, I was gonna but I figure you guys might have better ones than I have. So uh, um, we have the mics, one sec, she's grabbing one. Uh, up here in the front.
1: Hi, Don Burke, uh, University of Pittsburgh for Mr. Davis. Do you say something about the pricing and the commercial markets for naloxone? Uh, currently, my understanding is currently the price of naloxone is about a hundred and fifty dollars uh, per dose. The price of a bag of heroin would be five or ten dollars. The price of a the, the cure is ten to a hundred times more than the price. The is there. Is there will they uh, across the counter change that pricing structure of the market? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I was going to say it's a good question. I I think it's a it's a good question and um, a not great question. I mean, we don't know. I mean, in general, when drugs move over the counter, the price does go down. But in general, drugs go over the counter because they've lost their monopoly protection um, that they've had. They've lost their exclusive marketing, or they've lost patent protection, something like that. Like I said, I am mostly concerned here with access to community-based organizations, non-pharmacy access. Um, And there are a number of ways that those organizations can access free or very low-cost naloxone currently. There is a group called Direct Relief that uh, provides primarily antibiotics and other medications to developing countries, but also bulk purchase and and provides at no cost the injectable naloxone to community-based organizations. There's also a bulk purchase plan that a number of these community-based organizations have entered into uh, with the drug distributor where they're able to access the injectable naloxone uh, at very low cost. The barriers that I see and, and I you know I talk to these groups all the time are not cost, or they're primarily not cost. They're primarily regulatory. Um, once they have the, the regulatory stuff figured out, um, they're able to access the naloxone. There are uh, groups, um, you know, particularly mostly run by, um, you know, non, non-profit people, former people who use drugs and, and people who work with them who have been working on this, like, literally since, since 1996, starting with Dan Bigg. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's not that it's not important. Um, it would be great if there was some low-cost option. But like I said, you know, that is not specific to naloxone. Unfortunately, people in this country die every day because they can't access medications that they need. Uh, I think it would be great <laughs> if we could do something about that systematically. Um, you know, if Congress was going to move naloxone over the counter legislatively, I mean, they could. It is not that expensive in the grand scheme of the federal budget. I mean, they could allocate um, funds to purchase naloxone at cost. They could. Um, you know, there are mechanisms by which they could. Uh, take over and manufacture naloxone themselves. I mean, you know, there are, if we really want to do this, we can make it happen.
0: Hey, we one more short one, but then we're going to break for lunch. So uh, up there in the back. Uh, <clears throat> make it short, Jacob, really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hi, Jacob James Rich, Reason Foundation. So Dr. Wilson Poe, you discussed how marijuana use reduces the amount of opioids you need for pain relief. However, assume someone is consuming opioids right under what would cause an overdose. If they happen to consume marijuana and then do not change that amount, would the chance of overdose go up?
2: No, it doesn't. So um, there, there have been a number of pharmacological studies which show that if you introduce cannabis or cannabinoids into the system, it does not change the pharmacokinetics or the pharmacod- or it might change the pharmacodynamics, but it doesn't increase the blood levels of opioids that are already there. Also, cannabis itself does not activate the, the brainstem systems that control respiration. So the respiratory depression and cannabis are completely isolated. So no, if you have someone who's right about to overdose and they smoke cannabis, it's not going to have any impact on their, on their fatal or non-fatal overdose risk.
0: Okay, with that, uh, join me in thanking our panel. <laughs>